Hello and welcome back to The Business of Film, episode number 83. My name is Jesse Eichmann and thank you so much for joining us. If this is the first time that you have checked out our podcast, thank you so much. Uh, This is going to be a great episode and I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's all about financing, film financing and independent film. My guest on the show today is Matthew Helderman. He runs a private lending company based in the United States, Bondit Media Capital, and a host of other companies as well, including ABS Payroll, a payroll company, and Buffalo 8, uh, a media company. So he sees a lot of deals. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have him on the show today uh, is for, well, a few reasons. For one, we get into the state of the market. Tremendous amount of deal flow coming through Bondit Media Capital, and that is a treasure trove of information that we talk about in this episode. We talk about working with private lenders. How do you go about that? What can you expect? What kind of deals should you bring a private lender like Bondit? And three, understanding how a deal works. Fundamentally, what makes up the mechanics of a deal that you can bring to a bonded media capital or any bank or any private lender, just understanding those mechanics, so important. And I've had the opportunity to work with him on a previous uh, production. And I can just say, he knows his stuff uh, inside and out. And uh, it was a pleasure working with the company. So uh, as a result of that really cool experience, uh, knowing what their company is all about, uh, I reached out to Matthew and, and invited him on. And I'm just I'm happy that he was able to take some of his time to join us today. So please enjoy this in-depth conversation with Matthew. And we'll see you at the end of the show. Uh, maybe you can just start quickly by telling us a little bit, little bit about who you are and what you do. Definitely, and, and thank you, Jesse. Appreciate it. Likewise, we've we've admired the podcast for a while, and certainly sort of touches at the intersection of things that uh, we're super interested in, both the business side and, and the film side, and how they continue to collide more and more uh, in sort of the crazy world we all exist in right now. Uh, but sort of the quick thirty thousand foot view on us, um, I run. Uh, two companies primarily, one called Buffalo 8, which is a company I started when I was actually in college uh, that has grown to be a production, post-production management and marketing business uh, here in Los Angeles. And we've produced roughly 40 feature films over the years. And those have ranged from very small made-for-TV movies, made-for-international sort of pre-sale genre-driven movies, all the way to bigger titles that are focused with premieres at places like Sundance and Cannes and Berlin and Toronto uh, and the like. Uh, and then on the sort of outside of, of the, the film department, we also have a, a management business that represents big clients like uh, Spike Lee, uh, as well as Spike's company and big marquee writer-directors. Uh, and that business has grown sort of substantially over the years to be a bigger piece of, of our overall pie. Uh, and then outside of that, the sort of second business is something we started in 2013, which is called Bondit Media Capital. Uh, and Bondit is a senior secured hedge fund in media. So what that ultimately means is we're coming in and financing pre-sales, tax credits, minimum guarantees, and bridge financing on single pictures. And we've done about 250 motion picture deals uh, since we were founded, uh, deploying anywhere from 30 to $50 million per year, uh, usually across 40 to 50 projects per year. So generally the investment or loan sizes can range from very small, a quarter of a million dollars, half a million dollars, all the way to five and $10 million and and everything in between. Uh, And so those two companies have sort of situated us interestingly to see just a tremendous amount of flow. 
uh, across deals, across opportunities, across projects being put together. That's at the crux of it. And, and I think ultimately, one of the main reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because you get to see so much. When you're talking to banks, uh, especially, and I'm, I'm kind of categorizing you in that, you know, in that lending division. I mean, I know you've got multiple other businesses that you just mentioned, but, but, let's, but let's talk about what you're seeing because ultimately the fact is that you get to see more in the position that you sit in that most either directors, financiers, independent filmmakers get to see ever. So uh, wh- let's just take a quick macro view, State of the Union right now. What are you seeing out there in the marketplace? Um, and what is the hole that you see in the marketplace right now that is fundamentally the opportunity for independent, for independent filmmakers? Yeah, definitely. And I think the last piece I'll touch on very briefly, which I think will add even more insight into the flow we see, is that we also own ABS Payroll, which is a 30-year-old entertainment payroll company based in Burbank. And so that team, about 25 to 30 team members, has been running that company for sort of the, the peaks and valleys of how independent film has been formed and then reformed and then evolved and so on and so forth. And so watching that cycle and then also getting involved in that business that has sort of this legacy of dealing with independent films has also given us just tremendous insight. I think the crazy statistics on our side is that Bondit will look at probably about 1,800 to 1,000 inquiries this year. And that will be everything from submissions from filmmakers and directors to producers from sales companies other banks, uh, accountants, lawyers, you name it, we will see a massive amount of volume. And that doesn't even begin to touch what Buffalo 8 sees or begin to touch what ABS sees. And so if I'm thinking just in terms of what is working in the market and what's not working in the market, I think number number one is through the old school international pre-sale driven film that you can sort of attach XB movie star name to make a sci-fi or a thriller film, have it sell for a uh, million dollars or a couple million dollars worldwide based on pre-sale value in places like the UK or places like Germany or France who are these big, robust Western international territories that you historically used to pay quite a bit, that's dried up. And, and what I mean by that is buyers are now waiting for completed products. The buyers are few and far between. The buyers that are doing pre-buys have less capital than they've ever had before. And then there's sort of a big elephant in the room, which is Netflix. And Netflix is driving out so many of these traditional buyers. So if there is no pre-sale market or one that is very, very, very slim to none, let's just game this out for a second. What's the typical model that you're seeing? I mean, I I assume you're seeing variations on a theme, uh, and that theme is usually always a combination of soft money, equity, pre-sales, distribution advances, and it's always the percentages that, that change. But what is, the, what is the current sort of variation on the theme right now? What's the model that you are most typically seeing if pre-sales has gone from what was, I guess, before maybe 30% to now being, and I'm guessing here, 5 to 10, if... Yeah, yeah, it's 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 actually really interesting. I think we we see polars, right? We see very polar opposite models. We see really experienced producers. Literally, the lunch I just came out of is with a producer who's attaching Nicolas Cage to a film, and that movie is going to be largely a 100% pre-sale and tax credit-driven deal. So they're going to get a big negative pickup from a domestic buyer. They're going to get a nice international pre-sale advance. 
from the international sales company, and then they're going to get a, a tax credit out of Kentucky where they're going to shoot. There may be a tiny equity shortfall, but I'm talking maybe 10% of the budget in equity, and the rest is all going to be senior. Those kinds of films we're seeing more and more, but it's actually interesting. It's fewer and fewer names that are triggering those kinds of deals, right? It's the you know, Bruce Willis's and the Mick Cage's and the Schwarzenegger's and the Stallone's, these films that are sort of very much vanilla genre movies driven by one or two name attachments, and they make the films for under $6 million, under $5 million, in some instances under $3 million, uh, and, and it's a complete pre-buy. So we see that model working more and more, and that's kind of become the sort of quote-unquote pre-sales-driven deal that we see. Then there are, you know, to sort of add you know, a formula. But sorry, but before we go yeah. on to the next model, in that model, just to be clear, that is, model, that is a model where uh, producers are spending a large amount of capital, million dollars plus, presumably, on their talent, small below the line, yep. and then that film gets bought out because you've got a talent-driven star vehicle. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. I mean, I think the, the, the meeting we literally just came out of is a $3 million movie, and they're going to pay talent $1.2 million of, of that three. Right. Okay. And, 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 we're, and, we're, and, and we're seeing that. Yeah, I think there are places like Saban, like Lionsgate, like Premier, like yep. Code Black, like Grindstone, these places that are doing just pure pre-buy deals or largely pre-buy deals where they're, they're buying domestic for a million dollars, which in this day and age is obviously as, as good as it gets, unless you're sort of getting a worldwide Netflix or Amazon deal, that's pretty darn solid. And also a lot of these folks will now at least preliminarily commit to some form of day and date, which to some producers, obviously people still sort of have this belief in you know, the, the, the theatrical release and the upside that that can potentially create. And so if you can get a backstop with a potential commitment for some kind of day and date theatrical, we're, we're, we're seeing that model again more and more. Okay, now I'm going to need to stop you for again before we go on because I want to define a few terms for our listener because we've said a few things and want to make sure people really understand what you're saying. The first is senior debt because uh, you said you know that you you guys would come in for a senior short term debt. Can you define that for our listeners? What would be senior uh, debt? Definitely. So there are a number of items that can sort of fall into the quote unquote senior debt category. I think the easiest way to think about senior is think about the financing stack of an actual finance plan. There's the equity, which is really the base of the foundation of the finance plan, usually raised by and from private individuals that want to contribute and take sort of the long tail view of participating in a film and, and owning some of its upside if and when the movie starts having sort of big residual kickoff effect. That's the bottom. Then there is what's called mezzanine. Very not 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 in every finance plan are you needing to raise mezzanine. Mezzanine literally just translates to in the middle in, in, in French, so it's literally just the middle piece of a finance stack. And then there is the senior piece, which is the top piece, and that is a bucket which can encompass a number of items. It can encompass a tax credit, which is again sort of a senior piece of collateral or senior secured piece of collateral, which Bondit would finance. Then there are pre-sales, so the ability to pre-sell or pre-license you know, a number of territories, which, again, is also what Bondit would finance. Then there could be something called GAP, uh, and GAP is taking a view as a financier against the unsold portion of a film. 
So let's say you've pre-sold a handful of territories, but you still have Germany and France and Australia and Canada, some meaningful, robust territories are still available. A financier can come in and take a first position against those territories above everyone else in the finance stack. So what Bondit is willing and able to do is to roll all three of those elements up, the pre-sales, the tax credit, and the gap, and take, again, sort of the senior approach to financing. And sometimes that can be 100% of a budget. Sometimes it can be 20 to 25 to 30% of a budget. It just depends structurally on how the film is put together and structurally how much pure equity the producers have been able to raise. Got it. Okay, great. So let's move on then. We just had... Um, and I, I, I may stop you as we go because I want to make sure that everybody who's listening, because you are you're throwing out a lot of really great information, want to make sure that everybody uh, who's listening to this is picking it all up. Uh, and so let's just move on from, I guess, Model A. We had this sort of talent-driven model that you had mentioned, and you were about to get into yep. what you were seeing as the second major financial model that you're seeing right now in the marketplace. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think... Over time, we've, we've, again, looked at at thousands of packages, thousands of structures. I think lots of folks ask us this question in in different ways, which is, what's the ideal film financing structure? And I think if I'm being just completely honest, I mean, the ideal structure is you finance as much as you can with equity, and you bring in a sales partner early, early on to advise on casting and advise on pre-sales, but you don't necessarily execute those pre-sales unless you have to. Uh, and, and, and I say that in the sense that oftentimes a lot of filmmakers believe executing pre-sales is selling the film short, if you will, because they believe a completed project will sell better than something that is being pre-sold. And sometimes that is the case. Sometimes it's not. I, I tend to believe it's a flip of a coin. But I think if you have a really strong piece of IP and you're ideally making a film in sort of the perfect scenario, you're making it with as much equity as you can. Now, all that being said the sort of structure that we tend to answer this question with is imagine film finance as a pie and that pie has four even quarters. One quarter of it is equity. So that's raised from just high net worth individuals participating in the finance plan and wanting to own a piece of the back end. But again, they recoup last. Then a quarter of it is a tax credit or tax rebate, which I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with in terms of their netting amounts back based on your gross spend in a certain region, places like Louisiana historically or Georgia or New York, uh, states that have strong, robust tax credit and rebate programs, 25% is usually about average, and 25% usually in, in some form of pre-sale. And whether that's a negative pickup deal or whether that's a number of pre-sales, you're sort of patchworking together from a number of territories, it, it, can, it can really be either or. Uh, but 25% is usually what we would sort of say is uh, where you can sort of healthfully guess that that number should be if you have a package that, that works in the marketplace. And then the remaining 25% in gap. Uh, and, and by the way, if, if your gap stretches all the way to 25, you may hear banks or, or big senior you know, financiers say, well, that, that, that becomes super gap if it's stretching more than 15% of a budget. And that can be the case. Uh, but I would say if you have a strong enough piece of content and you haven't sold a place like the U.S. or, or North America, where there's likely to be a, a pretty decent sale, uh, the pie concept, again, with those four even quarters is about as scientific as we can get. Now, 
And I, the, the sort of follow-up question usually is, can those pieces move? Can the percentages change? And the answer is, of course, yes. There are, there are deals we see that 50% of it is a pre-sale or 60% of it is equity. Uh, and then you're just solving for you know, the, the permutation thereof in terms of how many pre-sales you need or how much debt you need to raise based on, uh, based on the, the rest of the structure. So in your position then, I guess, you fundamentally see yourself as um, a lender, at least where Bonded is concerned, not talking about the other businesses that that you're in, but the as a, a senior debt lender, where do producers, and I just, I'm just going to give you straight at it, where do producers mostly fuck it up? Like they come to you, yeah. you know what I mean, and 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 they're going to present you a package. What's the thing that it's going to be like? You know, this this deal will never work because you haven't thought of this, or you need to do that. What? Where are people kind of falling over themselves? Uh, and I'm, you know, just I say that metaphorically, but I assume you see a lot of deals that just don't work. Yeah, we do. We do. We do. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we see on average each each week we have a pipeline review meeting where the full team is sitting down and reviewing all of the new transactions that have come through the door, as well as deals we have term sheets out on. Where are they in the closing process? And so each week you're literally discussing 50 new transactions, maybe more. And every single week you're seeing pretty much uh, two or three pretty similar uh, pitfalls, I would call them. It's sort of the politically correct uh, you know, scrub out your 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 term. Uh, I think what we what we usually see is a producer not understanding the sort of general basics of a finance plan. They'll come to us and say, "I just got an, an approval letter for the state of New York for a tax credit. Can Bonnet go ahead and finance that?" And we sort of look at it and say, "Well, you have no equity. You have no sales company. You have no cast. You have no movie. You just have a letter that the state has issued that they'll issue to anyone." so long as they apply for it properly. That's not a finance plan. And that just is obviously an immediate red flag that there's no producer who's gone through the, the closing process of a financial close in the past. So I think right there, the red flag is producers believing they have an element that they don't, number one. Number two, they partner with a sales company or a distributor that I'll just sort of call it what it is, they're shady, right? There's lots of shady folks in this business you know, the, the term we always use is you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find anything remotely close to a prince in this industry. And if someone hasn't done the legwork to reference check the sales company to get referrals from recent producers who've done similar sized films and sort of see what the track record is, uh, we can dismiss your sales companies or distributors very, very quickly because we've seen so many deals. But I will tell you, we see producers day in, day out, partner with a sales company and be offered minimum guarantees or pre-sale estimates that are so outlandish and quite honestly just false and incorrect that we know we can immediately dismiss it. Do you have your own internal sort of metrics or, or, or data on we do. the sales that you're now using to benchmark just because you've seen so much? We do. Yeah, we do. I mean, I think the, the, those are probably the first two sort of immediate dismissals. I think you know, the, the tax credit piece or someone structurally thinking they have something they don't, um, and then we do have what we sort of call a, a tier ranking system that ranks from A to F uh, sales companies that we will work with. And, and by the way, most banks have that. 
most big senior hedge funds have that. Uh, just based both on your track record, but also the fact that this is a really small community. And so all of us talk to each other all the time, right? We're participating in deals with banks. We're participating in deals with other high net worths, other family offices, other senior funds like us. So you're consistently cross-referencing, should I do a deal with this sales company? I'm looking at it right now. And if you have a strong rapport in this industry, I think what's interesting is sort of once you get through a few rings of the circle, so to speak, you end up having these really positive dialogues with ultimately folks that are your competitors because you sort of see it as uh, the camaraderie or the closeness of this industry and the fact that they know at some point you'll have intel that will benefit them and, and ultimately they, they, they know that likewise they, they need to share that. So the answer is yes, we, we, we do have that. And just talking, I guess, generally speaking about the, I guess you could say I don't want to go specifically into, you know, the pricing of how you work because every bank, you know, and every lender is going to have their sure. own pricing models. But I think it's important for people to understand that working with any bank of any size, it's not going to work at a certain level. So where are, where what's, what's the bandwidth that you see in terms of, okay, if you've got, you know, a certain amount of pieces, like if you've got a budget of $200,000, it's probably not worth having the, or, or maybe I'm wrong, but it's probably not worth having the conversation with you because you your company fits into, I'm sure, a, a bandwidth of deal size. So what would that be? Like, how would you think about that? How would you conceptualize that? And what would you tell producers who are, say, looking for a lender like yours to come on board and be part of their project? Yeah, uh, two things. And, and not to sort of backtrack at all. But to sort of go to the last pitfall, I think this kind of goes hand in hand with your question here, which is know the deal you have before you bring it to us. And I think we see so many producers bring us in truly, I'll just use what it is, the word it is. We see an insane things every day. You know, I'll, I'll see between Monday and Friday, I'll see someone want me to lend against a gold mine in Colorado or a hundred million dollar cryptocurrency fund by Wednesday, or someone's you know, cash is tied up in a, a settlement of a, a, a I mean, probate court from a death or divorce. Like I, I, we see everything. And so I think these insane esoteric structures, it, there's a great sort of piece of feedback. One of the sort of biggest in the, uh, bankers and media gave us when we started, which is if you have to ask yourself why more than twice on the first phone call, turn away from the deal. It's not worth it. There's, there's too much hair. There's too many issues. And I see a ton of producers bring us those deals. And to me, that's way more of an issue than size. So from a, to answer the next part of your question in terms of size and structure, this year, in 2018, we will do everything from a $250,000 film to we are right now closing on a $98 million movie with Roland Emmerich and sort of big, big, you know, big names. What we sort of recognize in the marketplace is we need to be flexible. We're not a bank, right? We, we obviously we price and charge more than a bank. We're, we're private money. So our capital costs more, which means we need to be more flexible. But it's an interesting time in media in the sense that it's going to be 5,000 feature films produced in 2018. 80% of them are going to be below $3 million gross budgets. And so there's this huge opportunity there to be that flexible financier. And to me, it's way more about I see producers that have $250,000 movies that are more organized than big time producers that have $20 million movies. So to me, if I can get the structure right and the confidence right from, from early on in the discussion, 
that to me is more important than having making it be a five million dollar minimum or million dollar minimum. Five thousand films a year. It is as as you say. Most of those probably are not going to find an audience, even if they are financed properly. So it's so. I mean, look, my view of the field, and this is just my view of the field, but there's an abundance of supply, producers making films, and there, and people think there's a lot of shelf space out there these days, but I'm not so sure there is. Like, you know, Netflix is only putting up so many films from vendors who aren't buying, uh, you know, fr- who who aren't part of their, you know, their lines get output deal. So Netflix is, is right. Netflix has their output deal. So they've they've already accounted for I don't know twenty five of their thirty monthly buys. So like the, it's it's much smaller than people think. Amazon, I mean, we're not we're not quite sure yet what that model really looks. I mean, there's all these Hulu. I mean, like there's all these places which people are thinking, wow, the market's never been better. There's so many opportunities out there. But I'm not so sure it's as rosy as people think, or maybe it is, and I don't see it. Like so, I'm. It's very confusing, granted, or at least I look at the field and I'm like, okay, it's more competitive now than I think maybe it ever has because there's just too much supply yep. and not enough, you know, place to put this stuff. So, can you comment on that? Like what what do you how do you feel about that? Or what do you, what's what's your view of the field in that from that perspective? I think I mean everything you just said is is correct. I think, you know, for for one reason or another, it is a completely irrational marketplace in the sense that any other industry that has as low of a success rate as as independent film would not be around for that long, right? Any other investment class. I think the difference, however, that you and I can probably both agree upon almost instantaneously is it's different because there's art involved, there's dreams involved, there's lots of ultra high net worth individuals that want to play, and then there's the glitz and glamour of the business, right? The rubbing elbows on red carpets is still a sales tactic we see producers use even at the highest, highest levels on 20, 30, $40 million movies with high net worth individuals. Yes, you're, you still see people selling through box office numbers that, by the way, are completely irrelevant to the, not only the films that they're presenting, but also structurally. You know, we'll, we'll see people pitch, I've got the next Paranormal Activity or I've got the next Blair Witch Project. The theatrical business moves so fast that any movie you pitch within the la- that's outside the last 18 months is basically a different business model. Distributors are different. Marketing tactics are different. The collection streams are different. Oftentimes, the theater ownership structure is different. So all of a sudden, you're presenting me not an apples-to-apples comparison. So what do I view? I, mean, I definitely think we as a team view it as the volume continues to go up because it can be cheaper and cheaper to produce content. You think about SAG, you know, the, the Screen Actors Guild will give a breakdown on which contract at the, at the union is most utilized every year. And the modified low budget contract is by far the most utilized contract. So you're talking about movies somewhere between half a million to 1.2 and change type film. Well, that movie can be pieced together by producers being really persistent, beg borrowing and stealing to find high net worths or family friends to participate in a finance plan. And they may go make that movie but there's no structure around it. You know, it's, it's like building a product, but not having a storefront to sell it is the analogy we always use. And we see that a ton. Now, I think what is changing is these sort of strong players in the market realize they've got to pivot elements of their business model. They can't, as a sales company, wait for 
third-party product to land on their doorstep and be as high quality as they need to run their business. And the same now is true on the distribution side as well. You, know, you look at a company like A24, historically they were, they were launched, they launched their business based on getting involved in completed films from really quality filmmakers. And maybe they were involved uh, during the production phase to sort of give feedback or, or guidance on marketing ideas. But now you've got the full-scale developing and full-scale selling and thinking about launching, obviously, their TV, TV business. So the way we view it is you've got you've to diversify. You've got to evolve the model. You've got to produce content as well. You've got to have really solid relationships with good creators. And then the big elephants in the room are both Netflix and the TV business, which are eating away at you know, Netflix is driving lots of these smaller territorial international buyers, these folks that have primarily been cable and TV buyers, they're, they're out of the business, more or less. You know, there are some left, but if, if, you're, if they don't have the type of output deal that you had referenced in terms of Lionsgate in the U.S., it's a tough business for them, right? Because now you're competing with a company that has infinitely more resources, a completely different business model, and the ability to launch in multiple territories without having to go through the drag of being a, a, a traditional television or cable provider. So I think Netflix is, is definitely shaking up not only TV, but also the way all of these films are being structured from a, a financial standpoint. And, and how do you think it's affecting the pricing of films? I mean, this is something that I've really been thinking about lately, that Netflix is able to come in, offer, I don't want to say, you know, a considerable amount of money or um, more money because they're buying sort of on a premium basis because their model is completely different, but they're basically buying out films, which changes the the budget of the film and therefore changes the complete financial model of the film. And that has to have an impact on the rest of the business. So I'm wondering, are, are you feeling that yet? Is that affecting independent producers? Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like all things in entertainment, I think it has created uh, sort of dual effects. On one side, you've got producers that say, they believe they're producing the next Manchester by the Sea or the next, uh, I, I don't feel at home anymore. Uh, these films that break out at Sundance that Netflix does a worldwide buy on, we're seeing more and more producers believe that that is the path forward for their film. And they don't want to go the route of getting pre-sales because they believe Netflix is going to come in with that pre-buy. So we, we see that more and more on one side. On the other side, we definitely see sales companies getting spooked, right? Recognizing that if it's, if it's left up to sort of the, the day to day, there's no way they can compete for a great film at Sundance when Netflix comes in with way more capital and, 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 and way more strategy. So we have sales companies that now come to bond it and utilize us almost like a bank to help finance the ability for them to go make an MG offer, for them to go put up a pre-sale to actually buy a film. And, and I think we're going to see that more and more where sales companies realize this is a great film. It's going to do well in Sundance or Cannes or Toronto or Berlin. Let's just pre-buy it now. Can we work with Bondit to help cash flow that piece? That's very interesting. I've never heard that. That's, that may be actually the first time I've ever really heard that model expressed in the way that you've expressed it. Are, is that something that is starting to happen? Or is that sort it of the is. next? It is a ton. Yeah. So it, it is. It is. It's here. I mean, we've, we've seen it for three years now. Uh, and also for us, you know, we're not going out there and trying to do that with every sales company that wants to have a discussion. It's more about sales companies that have a great model, sales companies that have taste, they have a brand. So we know that what they're buying, they know they can go and sell it for X. 
but they also know that they've got to stay ahead of the curve and it gives them the ability we even have sales companies that do it earlier than the acquisitions phase where they come to us and say these producers brought us this film uh, the, the package is put in place so there's a cast there's a director the producers are, are ready to go into production they need us to put up an mg we don't have the cash flow right now to do it can Bondit come in and provide the capital for us to offer an MG that we will cash flow into the picture? And then Bondit and the sales company can own the film together. Uh, and again, depending on the sales company, to me, that feels like often how the, how the world is going to continue to be shaped going forward. Well, basically, it's you're kind of reverse engineering the equity model. I mean, that's exactly right. Basically, what it is, which is which is how you get your movie made, and then now you own 100 percent of the film. Uh, it's actually really, really right. smart. Um, I, I'm going to want to think about that for a little bit before I ask more questions about it. But that is uh, sure. it's a really, really interesting business model. And uh, the fact that you've been doing it for three years means you guys must have been way ahead of the curve on that one. Um, so, okay. Let me take a quick step back. You said earlier that Bonded is a private company. Uh, this is, is, is now, How did you... How did you get into this this business? Because you don't just build something of this size. Uh, you know, where did Bonnet first start for you, and how did you get into building this? You know, very robust private lending operation. Yeah, um, it, it, it was definitely brick by brick, day by day. But I would say I started Buffalo Eight when I was twenty uh, because I loved content. Uh, I loved content. I loved film. I was a cinephile. I wanted to be in this business to produce and ultimately direct content is really why I started. And after we put our first film together, when we were in undergrad, you know, Luke Taylor, my, my partner and I, we made this film called the alumni chapter and we ended up selling it to a company out here in LA. And we sort of, we ended up getting hosed on this deal and we were in our you know, just graduating college. And we realized there's this huge business opportunity here in Los Angeles. We, we were from back East in Connecticut and New York and families in my, my, my family's in the private equity and hedge fund business. And so I had a general understanding of finance and I had worked in it to a certain degree and you know, watched my family build uh, a, a private equity shop and sort of what, what was into, what that entailed. And so I had an elementary knowledge of that side of sort of the finance world. I was by no means you know, super, super, super sophisticated, but we built Buffalo 8. It continued to grow in LA and it got to a point where we realized we needed to diversify it. It got to a point where we were super burnt out in producing low budget content every year. Uh, and sort of, I think I was 25 when we sort of realized there was an opportunity to lend on union deposits, which is sort of this very small niche product in independent film where the guilds, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, and the IA, the, the Laboring Guild, those guilds require that you put up a, a deposit that they hold and don't give it back until production has been completed and all the obligations have been processed. And we sort of realized that there, there was an opportunity here to come in and, and lend against, against that element and cash flow it. And that was really the inception of Bondit. You know, it was a handful of high net worth individuals providing Bondit with sort of early capital to build that business. Uh, and the first year we were incredibly aggressive. So it was, Buffalo 8 was, was being run by different team members day to day, which gave us the ability to sort of have, have dual focus on Buffalo 8 and Bonded. And the value, the sort of the valuable thing that we had is that we had already made 20 or 30 features at that point. So we had all of these relationships with producers and sales companies and distributors. So when we called them and said, hey, we're launching this small fund that's going to finance union deposits, 
the dialogue could at least already have some momentum. It wasn't like it was just a cold call. And also in entertainment, when you're, you're, you're offering cash as your commodity, all of a sudden lots of people want to chat. And so at the end of that year, you know, the first year, 2014, we had done 50 transactions and all of them came back and now wanted to chat about, can we do tax credit or pre-sale or negative pickup or a bridge or provide corporate capital? And the business just took off from there. Wow. So that just started with you guys just doing uh, union deposits and just kept on growing. Correct. Amazing. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and how big is your team right now? So it's four of us. Uh, it's four of us here, and the, the capital under management now is uh, just about thirty, just over thirty million dollars total. And so, I guess the way any fund would work is that's a thirty million dollars of rotating money. It's like a revolving facility. It's got to go. It's got to roll from one project to the next to the next. Is that what you're what you're talking about? Yeah. So it's actually interesting. So the, the way we were capitalized early on again, as I mentioned, was high net worth individuals had provided capital uh, and, and it was they contributed to the business to build the business. But really, the only overhead cost of the business was the capital that needed to be put into projects. So because Buffalo 8 was up and running and we were still actively producing content and we had the post business going and then sort of management started to grow on Buffalo 8, Luke and I didn't take a salary from uh, from Bondi for probably a year and a half to start really building that business and hustling like crazy to really get it off the ground. And as it continued to grow, we realized two things. Number one, we needed more capital always than we had. So our, our capacity was always beneath what our demand was. There were so many projects calling in, so many interesting projects that there were opportunities. We just didn't have a setup or a structure to, to really capitalize on it right out of the gate. So we had to go out and raise money. Uh, and this was 2015, 2014, 2015. We had partnered with a hedge fund in Nashville, Tennessee, that was in music and some other media businesses, but not in content. And they wanted to get into business, but didn't want to take the commercial risk or box office risk, sales risk. So what we were doing was really appealing to them. So that was the first institutional money we managed, uh, which was for this fund in, in Nashville. And it was successful. You know, we, we didn't lose them a penny. Uh, but ultimately, that taught us a few things. It taught us, number one, institutional money is very different than managing money just from private individuals that have risk, that have sort of a risk appetite and have you know, trust in you. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, the flexibility you need in this marketplace is unlike almost anything else. You know, we, we, we'll, we'll get a call on a Monday, and the deal needs to fund by Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of several million dollars. Those are hard deals to do when you've got institutional money, if you don't have private capital. And so we ran the business for a number of years, sort of with a combination of private individuals' money, this fund we had topped up with. But then we got sort of very lucky, and, and a colleague of ours who you know, we had grown up with, uh, who was in traditional investment banking, joined us uh, from Morgan Stanley, where, where he was in M&A in London, and really helped sophisticate the business. And we brought on an investment bank to help us go raise a permanent amount of capital. Uh, and during that process, we ended up finding uh, a non-bank lending company called Accord Financial. We're based in Toronto, 40-year-old business, a quarter of a billion dollar company. And we realized uh, they had proposed to come in and buy Bonded. And we weren't sort of going to the market to seek being sold at that point, we were looking for a credit facility, but they sort of said, look, we, we, we as an as a institution are buying either wholly or pieces 
of niche finance companies that have sort of a strategic advantage or a moat, if you will, built around their business in a niche area where if they weren't in that business, the industry itself would, would as a whole be affected by it because they're sort of so robust and, and so involved. And so we engaged in that deal almost 18 months ago now where they bought half of Bondit uh, and they provided us equity. So that was an equity injection in the business. And then, yes, we topped that up with a credit facility from a large, uh, large hedge fund based back east that is a revolving credit facility. Skype went dark for five seconds. Uh, just go back, uh, f- go back from where you, you from, from what you were just saying there. Got it. So, so, so after we got the deal done with Accord, that provided us equity because they bought half of the business, and also the executive support and the fact that the team, and the management team, and the founding team of Accord, and they're all, they have six or seven offices around North America in so many different niche lending markets from retail to construction to uh, invoice factoring. We we all of a sudden sort of got to jump on the shoulders, if you will, of a business that knew this type of sort of niche non-bank lending incredibly well. And they helped us sophisticate even further elements of our business from the systems we have in place to reporting uh, to the kinds of capital we could go out and raise. And so then earlier in 2018, uh, we ended up closing another $20 million credit facility on top of the equity we have in the business. So it is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a drawdown. I mean, we can draw down on this facility uh, and it allows us to sort of scale up even, even further. But again, that was, I've been doing this for five years now and it's been uh, basically raising money con- continually for pretty much all five of those years. Which is amazing. Cause when you think about it, it's just, it, it, it speaks to really the demand in the marketplace to finance films so like like the growth of the like the market is just it's just growing because you couldn't do what you what what you would be doing if it wasn't already growing because you have got all these other competitors out there who are doing the, you know there are, there there are banks out there who are for the most part doing similar things to you uh there are other private lenders doing similar things to you but the fact that you can continue to go out and do what you do and have that business continue to grow just means that there there's enough supply coming into the marketplace to keep that business going, which is incredible because it just talks about this, the state of the market in general. Um, does that ever worry you in a way? Like I, I think about that. I'm like, well, shit, this, <laughs> that this must mean like the story you're telling is a good story, but it's also, it feels like it's an economically, like it's a macro, it's almost like it's a macroeconomic story. The better the economy gets, the better your business gets, the more films are being made. Like, does this, does this ever factor into your thinking? It does. I mean, I think, I think we believe there are two very distinct things you just said. The first is there are banks that do what we do. And the response to that is there aren't. Uh, and there's two reasons why. The first is size. Banks aren't interested in a, few mil, you know, a $2 million deal. There might be a couple banks that are interested in that, but the speed at which they close and the fees at which they charge on that closing make it prohibitive for the speed at which those films need the financing structure to be tied up so they can go into production. So the deal I had near lunch on this afternoon, a bank should 100% be doing this deal. They don't know how to get their hands around the risk. They don't know how to take non-bonded risk when there's not a completion bond in place. And this movie now needs to start production on August 1st. A bank couldn't even get the finance plan closed by August 1st, let alone be funded. So there are banks not touching the majority of, of what we're currently focusing on. I think that's probably the big distinction. 
that's a huge distinction, actually. And, and the fact that you're doing non-bonded productions, also huge. Uh, and and I, I can speak for experience that both the non-bonded element and the element of speed are massive, massive, not to be underestimated factors when closing a bank deal. So what you're saying, and I, I you know, I'm going to retract what I said before. Then I on on the <laughs> heel on the heels of what you're saying now, but not to be underestimated. Certainly for anybody who's listening, those two things, speed and bond, no bond, are uh, fantastically important. But go ahead. You you were saying the second thing is. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. And look, there, on that point, there are deals we see that we know when we see it, oh, this is a bank deal. There's no way this is for bonded. This is a bank deal because they have two months to close. They want really tight pricing. There's going to be a completion bond. There's a ton of equity. That's a, that's a deal for a bank. The reality, though, is that there are so few banks left doing single-picture finance that they're killing each other over basis points, you know, a few percentage points for uh, for pricing. And we don't want to get into that business. That business is uh, absolutely brutal. There are you know, three or four banks that are trying to kill each other over it. And we know we need to stay in our lane and stay focused on smaller t- ticket pictures. And yes, you still have to do 40 to 50 of them a year, but we know that that is the business. Now, the second sort of just the really important item is when you say, do, do I think about it? We all think about it. I mean, I think we, we know the vanilla product that Bonded offers, single picture and TV financing products. I think that market is probably 40 to $50 million a year is where it caps out, where you're financing actual production. You're coming in, you're doing tax credits and pre-sales. Is there more than that in the marketplace? Definitely. There's way more than that. But you'd have to get one, one of two things would have to happen. You'd have to take on more risk than we want. Or you'd have to price it so tightly that the yields you're making on that deal isn't, isn't worth it. So how do we think about growing beyond that 40 or 50? Well, I think, number one, you can run an incredible finance business doing 40 or $50 million of deployed capital a year, especially if you keep it small and you keep it very niche. And it's a hard business to penetrate. It's a hard business to raise significant money in. Uh, and it's a hard business to build up the pipeline in. Right? And we've been able to build up both of those things over time. Now, the way you grow that is twofold. The first is you launch a product like we just launched, this product called Bonded Select, which is a, a digital portal that will allow content creators that have done deals with places like Netflix, a place to just come in and fully finance those receivables directly and not have to ever deal with any, any, any individual person because they're just coming in and factoring a receivable directly in that portal. That's a whole new business for us. And that you're talking about billions of dollars that Netflix is spending on content a year and they lay out those payment liabilities over several year payment cycles. And many of the banks are at their lending limits. They can't lend anymore to Netflix. Places like Union Bank, JP Morgan, these places are caps lending to Netflix. They've lent so much against the paper, they've got to wait for those deals to come back. So we launched Bonded Select as a solution to say there are 50 or so subscription video on demand or uh, international broadcasters that are laying out these payment liabilities in a similar fashion we should be capitalizing on all of that, that opportunity because number one, it'll breed sort of the traditional vanilla opportunities for single picture on their next deal. But also we, we launched that product and we saw seven or $8 million worth of demand when we were beta testing it, right? Within a month of beta testing. So we know there's a big market there for that. And then the huge elephant in the room is television, right? You have so many independent filmmakers transitioning their, their focus over to TV. And quite frankly, many of them are using the exact same sort of old school 
international pre-sale model to make television. They're, they're pre-selling content, whether it's for a series or a miniseries or contained limited series. And we see this all of the time uh, where producers are now coming to us and saying, hey, the BBC just bought this for the UK and I'm going to sell the US rights to E1. And it's, it's basically an international pre-sale model. They're just making five or 10 episodes of TV versus a 90-minute you know, feature film. So we do believe film tops out you know, around that 30, 40, $45 million number on an annual basis if you want to keep the risk sort of where it is. But then you can grow with these other segments of, of the marketplace. You know, I feel like we're just getting started here. Like we've just been talking about, you know, big picture trends, just just at the tip of the iceberg on like Netflix and new media. We haven't even talked about your other businesses yet. We've already been chatting away for 15 minutes. This is crazy. Uh, we're going to have to do, a, a, you know, a bonded returns episode or something. Um, so <laughs> I... I I, I want to just um, just because you know I, I, uh, I and I do want to continue this conversation because I, I genuinely feel like we're just getting started here, so we're going to have to find a time to do that. Uh, but in the meantime, what I want to do is I want to give people who are listening um, a places that they can go to learn more about you. Um, I don't know and, and 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 what you guys do and, and offer. Uh, where are the best places that people should go if they want to connect with your services and learn more about? what you guys offer. Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I think obviously, like everyone, uh, our, our website is probably the, the, the best place to get started. So it's, it's just Bondit, B-O-N-D-I-T dot U-S. Uh, and we have you know, a big video series that walks through all of the different product types, uh, which we call you know, Bondit EDU, which is an educational video series that is, is really helpful. We have lots of people sort of around the world that have commented and really found that useful, you know, whether you use us for financing or not. Our goal is really to bring up the next generation of producers understanding just structurally. You should care equally as much about the creative as you do about the business side. It's, it's equally as important, I, I promise, long term. Uh, and then there's also the Buffalo 8 side, which is just buffalo8.com as well. Um, and, and both of those have sort of great resources for, for us as, as well as the, the projects we've worked on and some of the ways we can work together. That's fantastic, man. Um, any any last thoughts that you want to leave for uh, you know our listeners, just in terms of what you do or what? Uh, just any big picture comments that you might have? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's probably two things. I think for us personally, I say this in sort of the best of, of, of ways. We're, we're incredibly opportunistic. We're always interested in, in looking at things, whether it's a new project, whether it's just being a sounding board, whether it's an introduction to a producer or a company or an individual piece of content. We're always interested. You know, we, we, we obviously yeah, we look at a ton, and obviously that intelligence helps make you know, critical investment and loan decisions when we're deploying our own capital. But we also love the fabric of the community, both from the creative and the business side. So we're, we're always interested in that. And then I think from just the straight filmmaking side, you know, the, the cliches are always sort of very true, which is you just have to go out and make content and, and keep pulling the thread and let it sort of continue to unravel and, and find your path in the business. And there you have it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Tons of fun. Matthew is... Uh, thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on the show. Really, we were legitimately just scratching the surface there, as I said at the end. And I, I want to have him back on to the pod at some point because there's just so much that we can get into. But super, super important. Understanding the state of the market. Uh, as we talked about there, it's just so cool to to get his perspective on things and, and where we're at. A uh, little bit of housekeeping. 
You can find us uh, on Instagram, Craft Truck. Uh, if you enjoyed this, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, it means a lot. It helps other people find the show. Um, and uh, yeah, we just really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Uh, you can ask any questions you like. You can DM me at Craft Truck. You can send us an email, info at crafttruck.com. And let us know the kinds of episodes that you want to hear more of on the show. I'll try and get some more people that fit what you're looking for onto the pod. Uh, Thank you again for listening and thank you for your time. There are tons of back episodes that if you are interested in learning more about how the business works, everything from licensing to distribution to working with sales companies, uh, you can check out... um, You can check out the back catalog. So enjoy that. And until next time, thank you so much. And we'll see you soon.